Welcome to Simplify. I'm Caitlin Schiller. And I'm Deborah Corday. Oh, that voice that you heard, those beautiful dulcet tones. Clearly it's not Ben. Ben is away. So we have the fabulous Deb standing in for Ben. And Deb, can you just say a little bit about yourself and and who you are and any way you'd like to introduce yourself? It's like a whole Simplify episode for you almost. (laughs) I'm Deb. I'm from Paris, as you can probably hear from my accent. And I work in the people team at Blinkist. Yes. This is a bonus episode. Deb's here to talk with me about today's guest, Erica Dawan. We thought about this guest and thought, you know, in some parts of the world, things are starting to look post-pandemic, with offices opening up and people seeing one another face-to-face for the first time in a long time. But in most of the world, we're still conducting most of our lives via video and email and text, which makes Erica Dawan's specialty particularly helpful right now. She is an author and communication and collaboration expert, and her new book, Digital Body Language, How to Build Trust and Connection No Matter the Distance, it's kind of... It's a a digital communications manual, I would say, because traditional body language cues are missing in the Zoom world and G Suite. There's a lot of space for misunderstanding. So we have to develop a different kind of listening and different ways of showing empathy. And that is what Erica Dolan is here for. Deb, you listened to this interview Um, as head of people development. It felt right to have you come and do it. Is there anything about digital body language that you feel is particularly applicable to you in your role? Oh, well, first of all, I was like... It was the book I wish I had read eight years ago when really? I started working. Oh, yeah, wow. because, you know, how many times did I receive an email that I just completely misread or misunderstood? And, you know, that I think that's why now I use emojis kind of everywhere, because <laughs> I really <laughs> want to make sure that, you know, I nudge people yeah. to kind of assume good intent about what I'm writing. Yeah, It's all about building trust with people and confidentiality and relationships are kind of our currency in people development. So we need to be extremely careful about how we communicate, what we say and how we say it. Mm. Another thing that was really striking for me and really resonated with me because I'm an introvert was what she said about uh, group confirmation bias and Zoom thinking. So should I spoil it? (laughs) Actually, Deb, say more about Zoom thinking after we listen to the interview. I really want to hear what you thought about that because I also thought it was particularly useful. But for now, listen up for all the interesting stuff that you never knew about email. And we'll be back with the bookend to give you some further reading on this topic. And yeah, see you then. See you later. Erica Dewan, thank you so much for coming on Simplify today. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book, Digital Body Language. But Before we get started, I would love to hear a little bit about you. Could you introduce yourself the way that you like to be introduced? I grew up as a shy and introverted girl who struggled to find her voice and her place. My my parents were Indian immigrants, and at home we spoke Punjabi, uh, living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which meant at school I had accented English. And while at school, I was often very shy, more of an observer than a participant. And that often really allowed me to develop a knack for studying other people. I would study how the popular girls had their heads high, their shoulders back. I uh, you know, would see how the cool kids had their slouched shoulders. And even at home, I would watch Bollywood movies and not understand exactly what the actors and actresses were saying in Hindi, but I could use and understand their body language to make sure I knew what they actually meant. 
And my fascination with body language as a child led me to become a communications and collaboration expert. It is my passion, and I truly believe that in today's world, it's not just what we say, it's how we say it, whether offline or on, that really makes or breaks trust and connection. Yeah, absolutely. And funnily, your book, Digital Body Language, is the first book I have ever listened to via audiobook to prepare for an interview before. And that was really fun. I think it was a nice choice of medium for what you have to convey because you yourself voice the audiobook and you convey so much with your voice and tone. Absolutely. In many ways, one thing that inspired me to write uh, my new book, Digital Body Language, is simply that Today, in many formats, we are tone deaf, whether email, chat, text messages. And I believe that we can use digital body language to reinsert back that tone, that meaning and nuance, even behind screens. Yeah. So speaking of your book, when I prep, the first thing I like to do is look at the title and ask myself, what am I going to get out of this book? What is this book about? And with a title like Digital Body Language, I thought, all right, so I'm probably going to learn about how to project engagement and calm over video calls. Um, But as I listened, hearing about choice of medium, message timings, inclusion, I thought, wow. So what I'm actually hearing is something closer to digital communications etiquette. Why did you decide to call the book Digital Body Language and not something like all the ways you're emailing wrong? Great question. You know, in many ways, just like I was an immigrant to traditional body language, what I realized about five years ago, well before the pandemic, well before even video calls were the norm, was that today we were all immigrants to the new world of digital body language. I began to see many years ago that there was a high rise of misunderstanding at work. What did that email really mean? Mm. What was someone really saying on that conference call? I'll never forget even pre-pandemic, I was on a call, three of us were remote, three people were in the office, and it wasn't until the 26th minute of a 30-minute meeting that someone in the office said, does anyone on the phone have something to share? We had been excluded <sighs> the entire meeting. And, and so in many ways, when I talk about digital body language, it is not only about the power of video skills on video calls. It is about how we make others feel in a modern marketplace. When traditional body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone, are not the only way that we can send the majority of our signals. And especially in today's world, we need to infuse and master what I'll call the body of our language in a digital setting. And that's truly what digital body language is all about. Cool. So can you talk to me a little bit about the what comprises the digital body when we're communicating? The best way to talk about what comprises the digital body is by thinking about the different mediums, as each digital medium has different nuances. So let's start with email. I'll give you an example that I think will bring to life the digital body of an email. Uh, and that's one of my clients who sent an email to his boss that said, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? It was for a high priority meeting. And his boss responds, yes. Yeah. Now, this was a question on whether to speak Wednesday or Thursday. And you could probably assume that the boss was rushing or multitasking. But in today's world, the digital body of our email shows whether we read carefully. And today, reading carefully is the new listening. And writing clearly is the new empathy. So let's break mm-hmm. it down. If we think about even an email, 
Who are we putting on the two line? Who are we putting on the CC line? I believe that there are norms around this. If you're on the two two line, uh, we expect you respond. If you're on the CC line, we expect you just read it. You don't need to respond. Then let's go to the subject line. The subject line has its own body. I like to say, don't have a confusing brief, RE, a subject line without context. It will make or break whether people will actually read your message. And so be clear around what is the purpose? What is the response time expectation? Even simple things like writing 2H, which means I need this in two hours, or 4D, which means I need this in four days, can allow others to know that this is important. And then lastly, think carefully about the digital body in the body of your email. Uh, I recommend that people today don't read emails like long prose. They read them like they read websites. So remember that they're visual. Did you use bold headings, underlines, bullet points? Did you think about font style? Again, these are not trivial things. They make or break engagement in our modern world. I found that part of the book to be super useful and really surprising. I guess I just overlooked how complex and nuanced it could be. But given that the stat in your book, I think, is that it's 50% of the time tone over email, Slack and text is misunderstood. So I can bet that half the time my recipient is not understanding what I meant to say, which is wild. Um, And I think that also because it's the most asynchronous of of digital communication. Slack seems a little bit more immediate, as does SMS. Email might be the one most likely to be misunderstood. And in your book, you lay out the four kinds of anxiety-producing email communications. Um, And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about those so that listeners of Simplify can try to make sure that they're not doing this to other people. Let me break it down to, I'll call it the four highest signals of digital anxiety that we often experience The first is brevity. Brevity creates confusion. Even the example I just shared, uh, you know, the pressure to communicate quickly can lead many of us to taking shortcuts, sometimes leaving out context altogether. So if we receive a brief, confusing message that doesn't really answer our question, what I really recommend is to, first of all, don't get emotionally hijacked by the confusion of it. Mm -hmm. Know when to follow up and simply ask for clarification. If you're not hearing back from someone, ask yourself, is this the right choice of medium? Should I pick up the phone? I recommend picking up the phone is worth a thousand emails or something not clear that needs further clarification, even simple clarity in the subject line, that this is an urgent message with a specific request for them. And also making sure that we are not sending brief, low context messages. Uh, One example uh, from one of my clients was uh, she sent a no subject calendar invitation to her team member and her team member admitted that when he got on the meeting, he thought he was about to get fired. There had been some issues in the company and he had assumed the worst. So brevity can create a lot of confusion. The second one is to avoid what I call passive aggressiveness. So we've all been there where we've received a message where maybe it says something like, as I already stated in our previous discussion and in my previous email, dot, 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 (sighs) we may not always think that someone is as well-intended in their message. And we may feel a sense of passive aggressiveness in messages from others. What I really recommend here as well is to avoid responding to passive aggressive messages when you're angry or frustrated. Stay in the place of reason. Think, you know, why might they have sent this? Maybe they were rushing. Maybe they're on the verge of tears because they just had lost a deal. And so because we can't read those body language cues and we would be more 
nuanced in person, understand to show empathy and encouragement. And again, knowing when to switch the virtual medium can be very beneficial. The third and most common example that causes digital anxiety is what I call slow or no responses. So we've all been ghosted in our personal lives, but uh, even in our professional lives today, not hearing back from someone when we need to get information from them, we may start to wonder what's going on. Then we may get a little angry. Then we might start to ruminate. Did something happen? Should I analyze our last conversation for clues? And then finally, we assume someone forgot and we follow ups. When it comes to the anxiety we have around time of responses, especially as you said, in our asynchronous world, don't jump to conclusions unless it's critical. Remember that people have a lot on their plate and know when to follow up as well so that if people might have missed it, uh, they can respond. And if you're on the other side, if you have a lot going on, even simply replying immediately to that email and saying, I've got it, I'll get back to you tomorrow, I'll get back to you Friday, can reduce timing anxiety for someone else. And then the fourth, last but not least, the fourth most common example that can create a lot of anxiety is what I call a switch in formality. Or Mm -hmm. for example, you know, a high level of formality after there was a high level of informality. So let me give you an example of this. If you think about a communication you have with someone that you know well, maybe you often had friendly emails to one another that started with, hey, how are you, or one-liners, and then all of a sudden, they start to use and greet you in emails with a dear Steve. You might start to read into it. And so what I recommend is if you start to notice a change in formality, avoid getting anxious. Uh, Just assume good intent first. And if you see a consistent pattern, know when it may be important to check in with someone, switch the virtual medium, have a quick phone or video call to understand what might be going on. Cool. Yeah. I I mean, the first thing I thought when you said change in formality was who's on BCC? (laughs) Who might be spying? Um, Okay, so speaking of anxiety producers, there's so much anxiety and so much misunderstanding behind what we do and how we communicate digitally that I wanted to to get some of these out of the way in the first place. Um, Let's talk about the period. So let's talk about the period, that simple dot at the end of a sentence. The period used to just simply mean just that, according to elements of style and other traditional grammar resources we have. But in the last series of years, I like to say that the period has developed its own new meaning. In fact, one research study showed that if you put a period at the end of a text message, about 50% of people will think that you may be angry or frustrated. The other 50 will think that you were just using good grammar and punctuation. I like to say the period has different meanings, not only depending on your generation and your perspective, but also depending on the channel you use. Uh, The first thing is that older people tend to use them differently than younger, uh, Mm. especially for digital natives who grew up often in AOL Instant Messenger and, and other chat tools. The period often signaled a sense of anger or frustration, and that's translated to other chat tools. But for older generations who often started using it in text message in their professional careers, it can often mean just good grammar and punctuation. And another example 
is the power of the ellipses. So Mm. not just one dot, but the dot, dot, dot can signal hesitation. It can signal confusion. It can signal apathy for some, but it can also signal frustration for others. And again, it depends on the channel. It's more likely to signal these things in informal channels like text, IM, and chat. Uh, And it's more likely to just be conversational in an email, which in, in today's world is actually more formal than those channels. Hey, just a quick break in my talk with Erica to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Blinkist, which is where Deb and I work. Blinkist is an app that gives you a sneak peek into a whole world of great nonfiction books like Erica's. By identifying the key ideas and transforming them into powerful little capsules of text or audio that you can digest in only 15 to 20 minutes and immediately apply to your life. And the exciting news is that recently we've been experimenting with authors narrating their own Blinks. And one of the first people who got on board is Erica. So try Blinkist and you'll be able to hear Erica narrate her own Blinks to digital body language. And what's better than hearing from the author themselves? So go to Blinkist.com simplify, click try Blinkist in the top right hand corner, and you can try it for 14 days for free by entering the code digital. That's Blinkist.com simplify, use the code digital, D-I-G-I-T-A-L. And yeah, you're good to go. I hope you love it. And that's it. Now, back to my talk with Erica Dawan. So, you know, you were taking me through the digital body before. We talked about email a little bit. Um, let's talk about video. What are some best practices there? Digital body language on video calls has truly transformed, especially in the last year. And Mm. let me give you some really practical tips around how to show good digital body language on a video screen. The first thing is, especially when you're trying to build an immediate connection on the video screen with someone that you have never met before, or maybe you're trying to build your repertoire with, I recommend actually looking into the camera when you're speaking to them. According to a study by Quantified Analytics, when we are face-to-face, we make eye contact about 30 to 60% of the time. I recommend on a video screen, especially at the beginning of a conversation, actually looking into the camera, even though you can't see them immediately, they feel a stronger connection with you if they can see that you are looking at them. The second thing is make sure your video presence is actually aligned. You're far away enough from your camera where individuals can see your hand gestures just as much as your face expressions. The third thing I recommend is, especially in a smaller meeting where you're not presenting, is remember to check gallery mode to make sure that others can really connect with you and that you can read their body language as well. The fourth thing I recommend is to try not to spend a lot of time looking at your own video thumbnail on the video screen. It's not natural for us to see our own video on a screen. And and so try to minimize your own thumbnail if possible and really focus on either looking into the camera or connecting with others. And then last but not least, I think one of the most exciting things about video calls today is how we can not only connect on video, but we can also use tools like the chat on video calls to avoid turn-taking. Perhaps say, you know, we want to hear from everyone instead of going around one by one first. Could everyone share their response to this question in the chat first? And then I'll call on people who have different perspectives. What this can do is it can avoid turn-taking. It can also allow introverts who often thrive in writing to be included just as much as extroverts and avoid the bias of the initial individuals that are usually most likely to speak up on a video call to make sure that you hear from everyone. 
So it's incredibly beneficial to use the chat, not only for engagement, but to avoid groupthink cultures as well. Ooh, could you say more about that? Groupthink cultures? One of the things that I discovered in my research on digital body language is that the speed of digital communication can often cause higher levels of groupthink or what I'll call Zoom think, uh, depending on your video call tool preference. In fact, you know, when we get an email, a series of emails from a group where three people say, yes, I agree, it is much harder for the fourth person to say, no, I disagree, and here's why. It was easier in the office when we could read that someone had furrowed brows or pursed lips Mm. or was looking down, and we knew what to call on them when there may have been a different perspective in the room, but with the asynchronicity of email and also in that video call, if we say something like, who wants to share, we are more likely to simply hear, from those that are ready to share, those that are extroverted, those that are more senior or feel more psychological safety. And so simple Mm. things such as saying, we'd like everyone to share in the chat first, and then I'll call on people with diverse perspectives will really ensure that you avoid the bias of just the few people that are more likely to speak first and truly hear from everyone to get to the greatest ideas to be heard, which we all know come from usually some of those surprising individuals in the room. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I love that last tip about using chat. It can be so powerful. And yeah, giving introverts or people who might not feel as comfortable speaking up, even if they don't identify as introverts, more of a chance to have their ideas heard is just it's so important. I find sometimes it's even with the raise hand function, it can be a little bit difficult to get a word in edgewise. Um Actually, that relates really well to one thing that I noted down as I was listening, which was that leaders can ask people for bad news. What don't I want to hear? I love that suggestion so much. To create psychological safety, we have to remember that it won't just naturally happen in a virtual setting and body language was a critical factor in deepening that level of trust to create a safe space for others to speak up. One leader, Beth Comstock, the uh, former vice chairman of GE, had a practice where she regularly asked her team members, what is some bad news I don't want to hear? Mm -hmm. And it was not a one-off practice. It was a regular question in team and one-on-one calls. It really encouraged her team to share bad news, to speak up about things that were going on, and it created a safe space that allowed her to help remove roadblocks for her team. So lovely. So helpful. And, you know, Erica, you talk a lot about how two things that you really need to consider when you're communicating digitally is the degree of trust between the people in the conversation and the power dynamics. Could you talk a little bit about why these two elements are so important to take note of? In our digital communications and even in our face-to-face communications, we are answering always two questions that guide not only how we read others' digital body language signals, but how we send signals. The first question, as you said, was who has more or less power in this relationship? And the second is how much do we trust each other? So Mm -hmm. let's even talk about power first. Think about how fast you might respond to a request from your boss who has power over you versus maybe, uh, you know, a team member or someone you've never met before who sent you a cold message. Power does imply speed, and we do shape our digital body language based on power levels. And again, trust also plays a part too. So 
For example, if you are connecting with someone where you have high trust with them, you may be more likely to send a quick one-liner message. If you are sending something to maybe a prospect or someone that you have low trust with, you may take that extra time to be more formal in your language, to start with Dear Erica, to end with a best or regards. And, and also trust uh, can show up differently depending on our age, our gender, our culture, even race can play a factor in how we read others' messages. And so mm-hmm. what I really recommend is when you're sending and reading others' digital body language signals, always take a moment to check what is the trust gap here and what is the power gap here. And that can also allow you to avoid anxiety if you read something that you can't quite understand to know when you might want to switch to a phone call to not get anxious if someone with a higher power level sends a brief one-liner. Maybe they were just rushing and maybe that's a moment where you could simply ask for clarity. Oh, yes. That last thing. So good. I actually really, really identify with that. My boss can sometimes be very brief. And there have been times when she'll send me a Slack that says, hey, can you talk in five minutes? And I just think, oh, God, what did I do? <laughs> and uh, and I end up sitting and waiting and and worrying, although I know that there's probably nothing to worry about. It's this this sudden, abrupt, what does she need me for that can really send me spinning? Um One of the things that I really wanted to make sure we talked about, because I think it's an overlooked component of today's digital body language and communicating, is generational differences in communications. Could you take me through maybe some of the the major digital body language differences between digital natives and digital adapters? And maybe just a quick recap of what those two things are. In my research on digital body language, looking across age groups... I identified that there are some differences, but at the same time, generations are really a manifestation of the way that the world is changing and millennials are not all the same. Baby boomers are not all the same. However, I did identify that there are uh, different segments of individuals. There are digital body language natives. And on the other side of the spectrum, there are what I'll call digital body language adapters. Digital body language natives are those that really tend to skew younger, but they're not only young people. They came of age really learning the conventions of digital body language cues and signals. Uh, They may be very fast and informal text chatting tools. They may be the individuals that think that a period at the end of a text may signal anger or frustration. And on the other side of the spectrum are who I call digital body language adapters. These are individuals that have had to learn digital body language as adults. They feel like immigrants, uh, you know, to the world of virtual work. They've uh, maybe started to use emojis for the first time already in the workplace versus in high school or in college. Uh, And some of us are digital natives. Some of us are digital adapters. And some of us, I'll call her in the middle. I call them digital chameleons. Mm. So if you're a digital native, you might prefer texting messages. You may be someone who uh, does not like phone calls out of the blue. You always email someone or text them to schedule that call. Uh, You know, digital natives have what I call phone phobia. They didn't grow up in a landline culture. It's me. 
Um, you know, they also will tend to be more responsive on social media channels or IM channels versus email. And they're very apt to use a lot of uh, tools like uh, LOL or THX or multiple emojis, their punctuation to showcase cues when they can't show their video or face-to-face body language. On the other end of the spectrum, you're a digital adapter. If you may be someone who may insist on that call or meeting in lieu of an email or text message. Uh, You may be someone that may be a little slower on text. Uh, Instead of responding in an hour, like a digital native, you may respond in 24 hours. You may be more likely to use formal language and punctuation, including, uh, you know, greetings and signatures. uh, And you may be someone who may often, whether you realize it or not, send curt text messages that may say, you know, call me or get back to me now, that for a digital native may seem alarming, but for you is just how you would speak that text message. But the general rule of thumb here is that we are not all the same. We have Mm -hmm. to check our biases and assume good intent. If you're a native, be patient with your adapters. Don't assume that they're as fast as you. And remember, sometimes picking up the phone can help them. If you're an adapter, Don't get angry when your native always responds with an email when you want to get on the phone and know when to remind them, when to have those longer discussions. And if you're a chameleon, someone in the middle of a native or adapter, you can be a translator as well. You can bridge these two different styles. And at the same time, be sure to show your authenticity because you're often masking your own style to better connect with others. Mm, That is really helpful. Thank you. All right. I like to ask some summation questions toward the end of a Simplify interview that that help sort of bring all of this together and simplify it. Um, if you could remove one habit from people's digital body language, something that causes a lot of friction that people may not even realize, what would that be? The number one bad habit that I would love to eradicate when it comes to digital body language is avoid rushing. Hastiness can create mistakes. It can create cultures of groupthink, and it can cause your recipients to not feel valued, heard, and respected. And if we go back to that quick story I shared where a team member sent a message to his boss that said, do you want to speak Wednesday or Thursday? And his boss responded with a yes. This is not just an example of someone multitasking. Reading messages carefully is the new listening, and writing clearly is the new empathy. So we must think before we type, and our simple awareness of avoiding haste and being thoughtful in our messages will go a long way to building trust and connection with anyone, no matter the distance. Oh, so nice. It strikes me that it's really just useful to do the classic put yourself in another person's shoes before you send. Read it. What could they possibly misinterpret from this? Is it clear? Actually, when I heard that example, I didn't realize that there were multiple ways that that could have been interpreted. Uh, Saying, do you want to talk Wednesday or Thursday? Yes, is a perfectly acceptable answer if, if the person on the receiving end just thinks, is this person asking me whether I want to talk in general? Not trying to set up a specific date. It's funny to me how how broad what we have a very clear idea as to what we're asking can actually be. Absolutely. And taking that extra moment, that extra 30 seconds, the the overnight sleep before sending that next email to say, am I truly being clear, can go a long way and making sure that recipient on the other side is feels that level of trust with you. 
So good. Great. Erica, one last question. Uh, because Simplify is a book podcast, I really wanted to ask you what you've read lately that you've loved, if you can recommend anything. Can I share three books? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> more is more. The first is Rituals Roadmap by Erica Keswin. In today's world, especially with so much of our work and life boundaries being blurred, setting clear rituals that start our intentions of the day, that end our day, can be incredibly useful. And the Rituals Roadmap is the book to do it. The second book that I highly recommend is Remote Work Revolution by Zadel Neely. Uh, this is another great book on the importance of how to do remote work well uh, and to simply just make remote work work. And last but not least, the third book that I recommend is Professional Troublemaker by Lovey Ajayi Jones. It oh, is yeah. not only a fun, humorous read, but it will encourage all of us to be more of ourselves and stay true and aligned to who we are in a noisy, crazy world. Awesome. Thank you so much. Erica Dewan, thank you for taking the time today. It was a pleasure to talk with you about digital body language. Thank you for having me. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I think that you're going to have to challenge Ben for his job. When he comes back, it's going to be all over. Desk cleared out. That's it. Um, anyway, so Erica Dawan, Deb, you alluded to being really interested in something called um, Zoom Think, I believe, mm -hmm. at the intro. Okay, now that everybody's heard it, what really struck you about this? Yeah, I mean, as an introvert... I think I sometimes struggle kind of making my part in meetings or like I wait until other people kind of speak up and make their points and then I kind of make up my mind. And I found that it was just a really interesting thing to try out. And yeah, it's something I want to try out with my team. Yeah. You're referring to um, her suggestion that instead of just letting the people who always talk, talk, instead of that, asking people for their thoughts and their comments in the chat first, which yeah. I thought was, it's so obvious, but I'd never considered that before to collect people's ideas in chat and then go through them because then you get to see the source of the ideas. You yeah. get to make sure that you don't miss anybody. And I bet that a lot of stuff that might otherwise have gone under the radar gets uncovered. It's so cool. And I think it's so useful. Yeah, totally. I'll yeah. give it a try with the team. Yeah, I want to too. Ways to avoid Zoom think. Awesome. So for me, the thing that really surprised me was that 50% of the time, 50% people misunderstand what you've written, Yeah, um, which shocked me. And people don't read emails like they're letters. So they're looking for kind of like images within the text. They're looking for bold. They're looking for bullet points. They're looking mm -hmm. for shapes in a text in a way that you wouldn't in a letter, but you would in a website. And that's how people are reading emails. And it clicked with me and I realized, oh, I do that too, but I just didn't know it. Actually, there were a whole bunch of moments I had with this book like that. Things that seem sort of like on the periphery of what I might know or assume, but it was so good to have it clarified. Yeah, totally. You can never proofread enough and ask yourself, can this be interpreted in another way? You just might save someone else a lot of digital anxiety if you just take that extra second to make sure that you're being clear. Um, Read it again before you react and ask yourself, am I the one misinterpreting? And I think really important is expect the best 
what you're viewing as a slight is really likely to be just a difference in communication style. Maybe it's a generational thing or just unique to the person, but try not to take things super personally before you've really interrogated what's going on in you. So really proofread, reread, and expect the best. Yeah, totally. For me, it was more like assume good intent first. Yes. And if you find that assuming good intent is still not enough, I think it might be time to kind of fill up your trust batteries. Mm. Maybe it's a sign that something is up, you know, and you need to like organize a coffee chat with this person or go for a walk or... Mm. Yeah, what does she say again? Writing clearly is the new empathy and reading carefully is the new listening. Mm. That was I forgot about that. That was beautiful. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that one up. Yeah. Another thing that was really interesting was don't look at your own video. Oh, yes. (laughs) Do you do that? I've been trying to, well, what I've been trying to do now is actually look into the camera. And it's really challenging to look into the camera when you're on a Zoom meeting. And um, I've minimized my own video window now. And I try to look at the camera as much as possible. But it's really hard. Yeah, it's really hard because you don't see the other person. Yeah. I mean, if you position them like right directly below the video camera on your laptop, then it's kind of possible to do both at once. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting shift. Um, Because this is a bonus episode, we're actually just going to do one book recommendation today. And it is called... The Speed of Trust, The One Thing That Changes Everything. And this is one of the Stephen Covey books, and he wrote it with Rebecca R. Merrill. Uh, The Speed of Trust is about the importance of trust and how it can improve all aspects of our lives, from personal relationships to productivity in the office. And trust improves communication, as we know, as we've heard today from um, hearing from Erica. And in doing that, it speeds up efficiency, it lowers costs. So building trust in your team by being a good communicator, it's really, really worth it to your life and to your business's bottom line. Again, that is the speed of trust, the one thing that changes everything. Excellent. Okay. So, Deb, thank you so much for being here with me today while Ben is on vacation. Thank you so much, Caitlin. It's been an honor. Absolutely. And for me... So Simplify is produced by me, Caitlin Schiller, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Marta Medvedsek. Marta, why can I never say your name the right way? And my co-host today was Deborah Calais, Blinkist's head of people development. Um, by the way, this episode is brought to you by Blinkist. Blinkist is an app. It's also where Deb and I work. Deb, what is Blinkist? Blinkist? Yeah. Blinkist gives you the key insights from nonfiction books. In audio and text. And it's only in 15 to 20 minutes. And we also have key insights from podcasts now in a format called Shortcast, which does much the same thing. And we work with the original hosts on these. So you'll get fresh wrapping, fresh ideas from the original hosts and a way to listen to their back catalog and get lots of great insights in very little time. If you don't have Blinkist, but you want to hear all of that, you can go to Blinkist.com slash simplify. And we made a little voucher code for you. So go to Blinkist.com slash simplify, tap on try Blinkist. And then in the upper right hand corner, use the code digital and you'll get 14 days free of Blinkist. And that's it. Last thing before we go. I lied. It's not it. Last thing before we go, two requests. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Share it with someone with whom you love to communicate or with whom communicating has been kind of hard. That might be really useful too. And tell us what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Schiller and you can reach all of us who work on Simplify at podcast at Blinkist.com. Okay, that's it for today. And checking out. Checking out. Bisous.